It's New Hampshire Headlines in WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kirsted. Be sure, as always, to check out nhtalkradio.com as well as checking out our YouTube channel where these interviews are posted on demand as YouTube videos also. Excited to be joined this week once again by reporter Ethan DeWitt at the New Hampshire Bulletin. Welcome back. Glad to be here. All right, you've had a, a week of some very controversial topics, but I think that's kind of standard as of late. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday, April 20th, and Anne-Marie had a big deal article come out on insurance uh, carrier Anthem and some controversy around that that I highly suggest people check out. Um, I think there's a lot more to that story that she's probably going to be uncovering over the next few weeks, too, which will be interesting. But Ethan, you start. Let's start off with something that is definitely uh, catching on in national headlines: is ESGs. Uh, first of all, for those that aren't aware, what are ESGs, and who did you speak to about it? Yeah. So this uh, ESG is an acronym for Environmental, Social, and Governance Investing, and it's it's kind of those are big broad, broad categories, but it's essentially sort of a philosophy of investing, a strategy, however you want to look at that, um, that takes into account again, environmental, governmental, and social aspects of a company when deciding whether to invest in that company. Uh, and so that can include the governance structure, obviously, of a company. Uh, it can include um, you know, the, the, the gender equity at a company. It can include the company's sustainability practices. Um, so things that uh, are you know, often on the progressive side of the spectrum in terms of things to care about with, with investing. And so it has uh, emerged in recent years. There are you know, in investment managers who start to use it, who have started to use it as one factor. Some, there are some funds that use it as a primary factor. And it has drawn the attention of conservatives and Republicans uh, who oppose it as uh, what they, they see it as a politically motivated uh, style of investing that does not bring about the best returns. Um, some call it kind of woke banking is, is how it's sometimes referred to. So this is these are you can kind of see where the contours of the debate go uh, as they do with most issues now. Um, and so what happened is last week, Governor Chris Sununu signed an executive order that directed the New Hampshire retirement system and the New Hampshire treasurer, the Department of Treasury. Uh, we do have one in, in, in our state to not invest in funds that are solely guided by these ESG principles. And also for the retirement system, he didn't uh, demand it. Uh, he recommended that they um, do some reporting every, I think it was every year for him uh, in, under his executive order to kind of disclose what the funds are that they are investing in and whether or not there are any funds that are not solely there to maximize returns. Uh, and so, obviously, Sununu got a lot of uh, press attention for this. It's a hot-button issue that has, we've seen across the country. Um, and it, the retirement system, I should note, has you know says that it, it doesn't do this to begin with. It does not uh, prioritize anything but investment returns at the moment. But that is sort of what kicked this off. And so I, I uh, we Sununu explained his rationale in a press conference, but also I wanted to talk to. Uh, somebody who does invest in ESG to get a, to get their side of kind of why they think it's important. Yeah, it's it's very controversial. I mean, when I, and I've had conversations with Americans for Prosperity uh, leadership about about this on the New England Take. Also, um, 
this this is getting outside of my own partisan politics specifically at all in this conversation, but I, I mean, a big part of the issue also is, is that it's a big difference with what you're looking for when you're investing, even beyond when you're talking about the the woke banking as the uh, uh, conservative activists like to label it as. It's a different way of looking at instead of trying to figure out what's the best investment in the long term for a return on your portfolio, it, it adds factors into it that you may not have considered otherwise. And um, even it, it, and inherently, that's not a bad thing. And I'm sure the expert you spoke to said that's definitely not a bad thing, judging by what I read in the article. But it, it's a matter of what the priority is for what you're doing with your retirement funds. Yeah. So uh, just to go off that, so I, I talked to uh, the CEO of Impacts Asset Management. It's an investment firm that it's a global firm, but it's based in Portsmouth. Um, and when I talked to that CEO, I asked him, you know, so you do uh, subscribe to ESG principles? And he said, yes. And I said, is that primarily because uh, you want to stand by your principles and your values? Or is it primarily because you believe it's a better investment strategy to actually maximize returns? And he said it's the latter. So he makes an argument that while some people may invest in ESG related funds or may want that to be a criteria in their investment decisions, um, because of the because of the principles, there are also actual benefits financially to doing that. And so he was arguing that um, you know there, down the decades down the line, there's going to be uh, you know a, a transition to to cleaner energy into green energy. Um, and so he said that if that's going to happen, then we need to start picking winners who will be poised to take advantage of that new economy. Um, and he also pointed to you know certain studies around you know I mentioned gender equity that the idea that uh, you know if you if you improve gender equity at your company your company may improve so he said that there are these are factors that you know are labeled as ESG but that are really about long term investments and figuring out what is actually going to be something worth putting money into now that will be relevant in fifteen twenty years uh, for for challenges in the future so that was his pitch. Um, and so it was an interesting perspective that he, he said that we value kind of uh, returns on investments above everything else, but that we just see it differently. The other thing that he argued is that ESG is that a lot of um, investment funds do use these principles, but they don't necessarily use them as their primary investment yeah. um, criteria, that it's just one yeah. I mean, I mean, generally speaking, I mean, you don't want to be investing with a company that is outwardly sexist towards their employees or they've got this history of discrimination or anything like that. And that's kind of like the soft handed approach to ESG about the argument with it is like, yeah, obviously you don't want to be investing in bad companies because they're not going to survive in the long term, most likely. And there is a level of ethics that should be taken into consideration with investing. Yeah. And then just to just to represent the other side, uh, Republicans like Sunni New and conservatives who have criticized ESG say that it can uh, leave out certain companies that otherwise might be profitable that you might invest in, for instance, fossil fuel companies um, that, you know, certain depends on obviously the, the policy that each fund might have, but an ESG policy could potentially preclude investment in that kind of company. Uh, so that's sort of the counter. And then if you're precluding investment in companies that are that are 
giving you those returns, then you aren't uh, maximizing the returns. So it is really a philosophical and political difference uh, in terms of how people look at these funds. And but I thought my conversation with the with the uh, investment manager was actually interesting because he, you know, like I said earlier, he, his his position was that we're not just making an ideological stand. We are looking out for investors who want to invest in, uh, you know, a, a new economy that might emerge uh, in the, you know, the face of the energy transition. So that was his pitch. But he is a private fund that you can choose to invest in. The argument that Sununu makes is that the retirement system is comprised of people who do not have a direct say in what the system invests in. And that for that reason, the fund should not use ESG. Um, the CEO that I talked to countered that by taking away the ability to invest in funds that might use ESG, that uh, that, that might preclude uh, the retirement system from using a tool that might be helpful down the line. And he, he, he looked at ESG as a tool. He actually said that ESG funds is a bit of a misnomer because so many funds right now do use this, some of this criteria to some extent that to define something as an ESG fund or not an ESG fund is a little bit murkier now than, than you might think. Um, yeah, so it's a really interesting debate, and yeah. he definitely uh, kind of uh, drew attention to it. And as I noted, the retirement system isn't investing currently, or at least they say they aren't um, in any of these funds. So the executive order wasn't didn't have that much impact. But lawmakers are looking at a bill that would require the retirement system to more frequently report on what they are investing in. So you can stay tuned on that bill. Yeah, it's a super interesting debate. As someone who doesn't necessarily entirely understand, like I know enough to 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 know, like I want my money to go in a certain direction overall. But when it comes down to day to day of the stock market, it's a, it's a really confusing and fascinating debate. Cause, I mean, especially when with ESGs, like this is this whole concept isn't in an in inherently American thing. This is something that's really developed from the uh, World Economic Forum, which is just tremendously uh, villainized by the right in, in, some, in, in, in some instances, even by the left, because of their kind of uh, aggressive controlling that they try and do with ESGs. And it puts a bad taste in people's mouth. And personally, for me, I, I see it as a chicken and the egg problem. Like, this guy's making good points that you spoke to uh, over at Impact's Asset Management, but it, you, you even said like it seems like it, it's like it looks like this is going to be the way it's going to be going. So it makes sense to invest in it, but you don't know. But also on the other side, you never know with investment. It's always a bit of a, of a crapshoot where you're going, okay, I'm going to use the data I have, but I ultimately I don't know if in 30 years when I knock on wood will be retiring, what exactly was was the bet that was successful. Yeah, and I think the theme is, you know, everybody obviously wants to make good returns. They want to invest their money into a, a, a fund that will give them a safe retirement. So it, I think political values do come into play as much as invest uh, investment professionals would say that they aren't. They don't. Um, for the people on the other side, like politicians or the end users, they the politics do come into play in terms of what they think is a safe investment. So, you know, a, a conservative might say, well, this is uh, you know ridiculous that we're not investing in fossil fuels. And someone who's on the progressive side might say, well, fossil fuels are about to, you know, uh, become irrelevant. So it, it, there's an extent where values shouldn't come in. And there's an extent where values actually do inform whether you think you're going to make it a good investment. And everybody's trying to make, at the end of the day, a good investment. So it's really complicated and tangled. Uh, and it just kind of comes down to your values. Yeah, definitely. 
All right, let's move over to uh, education, your, your, your main beat here. So uh, Elderblut is avoiding defining adequate education. This has been a fascinating debate alongside the EFA debate and it's kind of blossomed from there into a larger look at what's going on with education funding. But what's this lawsuit specifically? Yes, you may have heard about this lawsuit. It's been going on for a few years now. It's called the Conval lawsuit for short. Uh, the longer version is Kentucky Valley School District versus State of New Hampshire. And essentially, the Conville District in Peterborough is saying that there is a, a, a provision in the Constitution that uh, the Supreme Court in the 1990s interpreted to mean that the state must provide an adequate education. You may have heard the phrase adequate education. That comes from a 1992 Supreme Court decision, the famous Claremont decision, Claremont 1, that uh, decreed from the court that the Constitution uh, has the requirement that the state provide an adequate education. So what Conval is arguing is right now, the way the school, way the state funds um, school districts and the amount that they fund per student does not come close to uh, to come to meeting the, the standard for an adequate education. Um, right now, it's about $3,800 base per student. There's extra money that can go towards certain students, low-income students, um, um, students who use special education services. But right now, it's around, you know, from anywhere from $4,000 to $7,000 per student. And on average, the actual cost that districts pay is around nineteen dollars to $20,000. So this lawsuit is about, should the state pay more? And should the court be should the court, New Hampshire court system, which already ruled on some of this in the 90s, be more specific about how much the state should pay and what does count as an adequate education? But and back in the 90s, the courts essentially said the legislature should figure it out. And they came up with the funding system we have now. And so this school district is saying, well, the legislature didn't really figure it out because it's, this isn't this still isn't enough. Uh, and the state is saying, well, this isn't the you know, the court's jobs job to to kind of wade in here. This is for lawmakers to decide if they want to spend more on schools, then they should pass a bill that shouldn't be coming down from the court. So that's where this this uh, debate is. This case has rocketed around up and down. It actually made it to the state Supreme Court um, after a superior court ruled in favor of the school district and said that the state that that what the state has right now is unconstitutional, went up to the state Supreme Court and they did not issue a sweeping ruling that had been issued in the 90s. People were wondering what they would do. Instead, they said that there hasn't been enough information that has been proven about how much it actually costs to educate a student and what you need to pay. So the Supreme Court, this is in 2021, said we need to send it back down to the Superior Court. And that's where this case is right now. It's back, it's back in Superior Court. And the goal of the trial, which is going on all month, it's going on until early May, is to determine for this Superior Court judge, David Ruoff in Rockingham County Superior Court, to determine what is an adequate education. And this is sort of this giant problem. It's like the $64,000 question in, in New Hampshire education. How much is reasonable to expect the state to pay? And so what happened is this week, the commissioner of the Department of Education, Frank Edelblut, took the stand and was asked a number of questions, both on examination and cross-examination, about what he believes should be the level. And uh, you know, t again and again, he said that he actually couldn't offer specifics, that it was a question to be determined by the legislature. And the attorneys were trying in as many different ways as they could. Even the judge stepped in, Judge Ruoff stepped in and asked, OK, uh, can you can you clarify this? Uh, the commissioner's position is that 
there is a statute in the state that says it defines what an adequate education is. It lays out broad principles and that's it. And if the legislature wants to define that further, they can do that. But the, the Department of Education doesn't have a role in determining how much the uh, the state really should owe the schools. So yeah. what is interesting about this uh, sort of difficult answer is that it's going to make the judge's job really hard. He has, you know, a few more weeks of testimony to listen to. Um, but I, and I, and it's, it's unclear whether he'll rule with the plaintiffs at all, but if he does rule with the plaintiffs and, and he needs to come up with a number as they're asking for what would be reasonable, some say it should be closer to 10,000 and not $4,000 per student. Wow. If he needs to come up with that, it's going to be very difficult for him to do that, especially with, uh, the, the commissioner himself saying that it's not, it's not my, you know, it's not, it's not my call to make. It's a political, legal and financial nightmare to sort out because it, it I mean, ultimately, it, it kind of, no one, as you said, no one has the answer with regards to how much education is supposed to cost in, in this state at all. It's more expensive, uh, actually, over at nhjournal.com, they happen to post uh, a, a write-up by Drew Klein over at the Bartlett Center on, he's who's also on the state education commission. And or, or council, I can't remember the, the exact. So it doesn't really matter. He, he's involved with Edel Blue, <laughs> and he's a conservative. State Board of Education. He's the chairman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, it, he outright says, like, it costs more to educate students in New Hampshire than it does in Massachusetts per pupil, and no one has a real solution outside of we want more money or we want less money. It, it seems like big picture spending with where the pot of money is supposed to do. But a big thing that's important with this conversation politically also is local control because more. More and more that the state is responsible for the funding. Guess what? The state's going to be more and more responsible for what's happening in the schools. That's how it always goes politically. 100% of the time, this is what's going to happen. We saw it. Think of the highway system. We have certain speed limits on the highway because we gave the federal control over how these roads are to be handled. So they made the determination. And they guilted the or guilted facetious way of phrasing it, but it, it's it's like if you want our extra funding for other things, you better set these speed limits. So it's going to be the same thing on education side, and the left better be very careful with that because they've been so very much saying with, uh, with book banning and all those sorts of things that local school districts should have ultimate control over what's happening there. But if it goes to the state, guess what? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting perspective. And I, again, it's uh, this is going to take years, I should just yeah. say, because if this Superior Court judge in Rockingham County Superior Court does side with the plaintiffs, it's going to go back to the to the Supreme Court. And then we might see a, another blockbuster decision like we saw in the 90s, or we might see a, an attempt to narrow it down, narrow down their decision and not try to speak to, in, with the same kind of scope that the, the court did in the 90s. So. Whether we're going to see the court decree an actual number for the state to pay, I mean that really is up uh, is is unclear at this point. Um, there's also another lawsuit I should I, you know should point out that's focused more on taxpayers. That's being led um, by some of the people who are in the Claremont decisions. But anyway, uh, it's it is really unclear where it's going. But that is an interesting point that you raise about kind of what might the effect be if they do raise it. Um, one one thing that should be said about the the state of education in New Hampshire is that because 
about a, only about a quarter of what the, uh, is on average the cost per student is paid by the state right now. Three quarters of that comes from local taxes. And as you noted, that that gives a wide latitude of local control. It also means that there are some property poor towns who are having to you know sort of downsize. And then there are property rich towns who are able to um, upgrade a lot. And so it, it becomes, it, it's just a matter of kind of what you think is a more effective way to fund, to have a more stable and higher amount from the state, or to have a lower amount and allow the communities to kind of decide themselves and have each community do different things. Um, as you know, that's a political, that's a, that's a big philosophical d- discussion that won't be solved by any court decision. Um, and I don't think you can would expect to see the legislature raise the adequacy amount on its own anytime soon, given that the kind of the way that the state has divvied up the money that goes in there is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to raise it by up to nine or 10,000 on your own because you'd have to really overhaul everything. Yeah, and it's way too tight over there with with the margin between Republicans and Democrats also, and Sununu kind of trying to play in the middle with a lot of things. It's a political nightmare, but we're unfortunately out of time. This is definitely something we'll be covering, both these things, ESGs and, and education funding in the future. It's Ethan DeWitt over the New Hampshire Bulletin. Thank you so much for joining me. Always glad to be on. New Hampshire Headlines and WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kier, so be back next week.